Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Welcome to the last day of Astronauty Week, if you've been following along at home. So we're going to devote this show a little bit more to the world of imagination. How do we imagine extraterrestrial life when we're making movies or television shows or any other kind of fictional representation? And to what degree do those acts of imagination get informed by the actual science, by what we actually know scientifically about what is possible and what might not be possible? So we're going to do all of that with a wonderful writer named Jamie Green. And then we are so fortunate to have He's got to hold the record for the most non-human creatures ever, ever acted. The great actor Doug Jones will join us at the end of today's show. And welcome to the final installment of Astronauty Week. This is one that we've, well, they're all exciting to us, actually. I, I don't want to have a favorite child here. But we are going to spend a little bit of time today just talking about the way in which extraterrestrial life is envisioned, both by scientists and by creators of culture. The culture stuff reaches us more, obviously. But it's not as though scientists aren't thinking about this as well. And we have the perfect person to combine those two things. Jamie Green is a science writer and author of The Possibility of Life, Science, Imagination, and Our Quest for Kinship in the Cosmos. So, Jamie Green, before we even get going with you, we sent a couple of interns out, Joey Morgan and Letitia Peters, out on the streets to find out what people on the streets think aliens look like. Here's how that went. What do you think aliens look like? Well, if I had, uh, I think they look like us. I think because because of, of it being so much like you no know, intelligence, just you no know, us having intelligence, and I don't think that we're the only people that have intelligence as such. So I think they're similar to us. I guess when I picture aliens, when you say that word, I just see like a typical, you know, almost like a cartoon version of them. Um, but I guess they could look like anything. I know, you see all the ones in the, like the movie theater, in the movies. Could be different though. Mm. Could be coming in all forms. You know, one of us could be an alien. We don't never know. <laughs> Maybe we are the aliens. <laughs> Maybe we are the aliens. And other people are looking at a different planet. Like, who are these people? Right. So I'm not sure. Uh, amorphous and like Voldemort. Probably not little green men, but who knows? I guess they could look like anything. It depends on how their worlds are developed. Green. Like one, no nose, big eyes, just like the alien cartoons. That's what I think, and I want to think they are looking like that, you know? Oh my gosh, I don't know. Maybe they are green? Yeah. Gooey? <laughs> you know, friendly? I hope they're friendly. <laughs> Well, those people obviously knew we were having Jamie Green on today. They said Green an awful lot. I don't know. I, I have a specific thing I'm, I want to ask you about what was said there, but what's your overall reaction? A lot of this kind of plays right into a lot of what's in your book. Yeah, it's really interesting. And also, I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for having me here today. And hearing that was so great because I love the combination of people who are knowingly like describing things that they have seen in pop culture, little green men, you know, no eye, no nose, big eyes, Voldemort, amazing. <laughs> and then people who are taking the approach of, well, we don't know. There's no way to know. And I especially loved the person who said, it depends what their world is like. That is very scientifically sound, but even possibly so is people saying that aliens would look a lot like us. But really the most scientifically sound is that we have no idea. Exactly. And and I, I sort of like the implication, they didn't quite say it, but 
that you know somewhere else in the universe there might be people trying to figure out what we look like. What do you what do you think there? Do you have like two legs and two arms? We won't know till we get there. That'd be weird. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that would be so strange and gross. Why aren't they gooey and gaseous like us? So there is. I mean, what you, what you just said is important. There is no scientific consensus, which isn't to say there hasn't been or haven't been centuries of scientific speculation about what other life forms might look like. Do you want to say a little bit more about that? Sure. I mean, I think, again, going back to that favorite answer of mine, that it depends what their worlds are like. It really started in European culture around the Renaissance with the discovery that there were other planets and that Earth was just a planet, that the Earth wasn't the center of the solar system, that the dots we saw in the sky that looked like stars but didn't twinkle and moved differently were worlds just like the Earth is. And that just opened up all of this imaginative real estate for thinking, okay, if those are worlds, like Earth is a world, and they're made of the same sort of matter that the Earth is made of because the Earth isn't special, the Earth isn't the center of the solar system, then why wouldn't there also be life there? And what might that life be like? And then that opens up all of these fascinating thought experiments about, okay, if the worlds are different in little ways or big ways, how might that make life on those worlds also be different? A lot of the thinking that you you heard in that clip is, as you say, influenced by what they've seen. And Mm -hmm. you were influenced, as was I, by Star Trek and specifically Star Trek The Next Generation. One of the big questions that comes up a lot if you watch Star Trek is, why are there so many humanoid (laughs) aliens? Star Trek actually had an answer to this. You said it at the beginning of your book, Our scientists seeded the primordial oceans of many worlds where life was in its infancy. The sea codes directed your evolution toward a physical form resembling ours. This body you see before you, which is of course shaped as yours is shaped, for you are the end result. Jamie Green, this particular episode of Star Trek, The Next Generation, was very influential to you. And it posits an answer as to why we see so many humanoid aliens, too. Yeah, and it's actually, it's not a unique way of thinking in sci-fi. It's also the premise of Ursula K. Le Guin's set of sci-fi novels called Her Hainish Cycle, which is set in a universe where worlds across the galaxy have been seeded by this ancient race from a planet called Hain. And those books are written in a time where those people on those worlds are starting to develop sort of interstellar traveling communication and are finding each other and reconnecting. And so the I don't know if the Star Trek episode was directly influenced by that or if it was just like, hey, can we explain why everyone looks like people? And it's not everyone in Star Trek looks like people. There are wildly varied, wildly imagined creatures, you know, creatures of pure energy, all sorts of unimaginable things. But I just, I love in that episode how they come up with this explanation and it feels like it should be world shattering is you have just found out this amazing information about the origin of your species and other intelligence in the universe. And then everyone just goes back to their business. No one cares. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's kind of the way humans are anyway. I mean, I, I, I think back to recently, and I, your book has nothing to do really with UAPs or UFOs or anything like that, but when when they sort of came out to the page one of the New York Times, and yes, there really is a program to look at them, people kind of said, oh, that's interesting. They might be real. Oh, okay, back to whatever we were doing before. I think we're kind of <laughs> wired to default into normalcy, even when we hear about something kind of anomalous. I also want to point out that in that episode, as well as many other episodes, the creators of Star Trek did anticipate a separate race called the Cardassians who would be you know, very wealthy and not that interested in the rest of us. And so <laughs> that's you know, seeing around corners as well. Um, so there might be another more scientifically clear reason to think about at least some extraterrestrial life forms, if there are any at all, which we're not conceding that there are, why they might look a little bit like us. And that is the notion of convergent evolution. Explain what that means. Sure. So we see convergent evolution on Earth. And this is when distantly related organisms independently evolve 
similar traits or abilities or shapes. So plants have evolved the ability to produce caffeine something like four or five separate times. Human eyes and octopus eyes are anatomically very similar with lenses and things like that evolved totally separately. Shark bodies and dolphin bodies. Mm -hmm. These are all examples of different organisms finding the same solutions to the problems of living in the world. So if we look at sharks and dolphins, you know, how do you move through water quickly and efficiently? Well, it's this sort of streamlined shape with some fins and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Or how do you get as much information as possible from light? You want to be able to focus it with a lens. And there is a fundamental debate in evolutionary biology as to whether convergence is the rule that, you know, faced with the same problems, the same challenges in the environment, different animals or plants will through, you know, trial and error, the, the best solution always will win out. Or is convergence a fluke and we just notice it because it's visible, but really evolution is random and depends on so many small factors that odds are if as the saying goes, if you rewound the tape of evolution on Earth and played it again, it might end up completely differently. And you can do experiments about this, especially with animals that reproduce and live very quickly, like flies and sort of, you know, or or bacteria, and see if you separate similar organisms and sort of send them down the same path. Do they evolve the same way? And it's like, sometimes yes, sometimes no. Yeah, and I, I think another good example, I mean, similar to dolphins and sharks, birds and bats. One's yeah. a bird, one's a mammal. But if you want to fly through the air, you're probably going to need wings. I mean, at least they're a good thing to try if you want to fly through the air. Well, and also you can see this with intelligence, that we see intelligence tending to evolve in animals who live socially because it's useful. Are those intelligences the same? Like, is our intelligence the same as a dolphin's, the same as a crow's? No, but it also depends like how broadly you're looking at things, you know, like, yes, wings, great solution, aerodynamic bodies, great solution for the water. But would we say that birds and bats are the same are equivalent are as similar as humans are to Vulcans? It's, you know, it's it all gets kind of subjective. So another question your book raises about that, um, and, and I think it's a question that we could both, you know, address and also maybe wonder ultimately whether it's relevant, is whether or not fictional imaginings of extraterrestrial life need to follow any kind of rules comparable to what we were just describing here. And one of the examples you give are the Avatar movies and the planet <laughs> Pandora, the most prominent forms of life actually do look kind of like us. And that's just sort of a casting director issue, I think. But everything else is kind of a hexapod. Everything has six limbs, except there are these monkey things who have few, yes. fewer than six limbs, which would suggest that a monkey thing that was cr climbing around in trees would have evolved to have fewer limbs, which you point yeah, out is kind it, of absurd. Yeah, it was, it was a paleontologist who pointed this out to me. And it's just, it's so fascinating because you understand why James Cameron would want six-legged animals on his alien world, because it just looks alien. It looks different. And you understand why he would want four-limbed humanoids because even in a mocap suit, it's just going to be hard to add a set of extra limbs. And you also want the characters to seem familiar and relatable. They are love interests for humans. You don't want them to be too different. And so this monkey-like creature that you see for a split second in the background. So I, I really appreciate whoever had this thought to give logic to the evolutionary system on Pandora. It looks like it was a six-legged creature, but its top arms and its middle arms are sort of fused up until the elbow, and then they, they branch out. So it's like sort of, you know, it still has four hands and a set of feet, but you can imagine it being this um, missing link between the six-legged creatures and the four-limbed creatures, except, as you said, and as this paleontologist pointed out to me, if you are a creature who climbs trees the last thing you would evolve, the last thing that would be useful is fewer limbs. And actually, when animals run on the ground like horses, they tend to evolve towards less contact with the ground. So like horses have a hoof, which is really one fingernail, you know. So it's a really thoughtful gesture that 
isn't evolutionarily sound, but is cool. And and again, the question is like, does it matter? I don't know. Yeah, one of the by the way, one of the cool things about the book, the possibility of life, science, imagination, and our quest for kinship in the cosmos, is that you also hired an illustrator who I believe is also named Jamie Green uh, <laughs> to draw some to of draw- these things. I mean, the drawing of that little monkey creature from Avatar is absolutely the the worst drawing in the book. It was basically... <laughs> I like that. The, I like it. I like all your well, drawings. It's, I, I really appreciate that. And it's very hard to fully explain the logistics of where this creature's arms and legs are. So I was like, all right, I'm just going to draw it. <laughs> Otherwise, the drawings are things like atoms or, you know, sentence charts for the linguistics section, you know, because it it really I wanted it to feel like like I'm talking to the reader and explaining something. And I get to the point where I just want to scribble it on a napkin so that you can see it, you know. And for the most part, my skills are up to that. For the monkey, it's I mean, you can see where its arms are. So it gets the job done. <laughs> No, I enjoy your illustrations very much. Thank uh, you. <laughs> they seem almost within my reach, and I can't illustrate anything. So um, I'm so glad. <laughs> yeah. So another perfectly rational response to all of this would be that extraterrestrial life, even if it were somewhat sentient, even if it had, say, a technology, whatever test we want to put to it, it still didn't really need to look anything like anything we've ever seen. Carl Sagan proposed, as you point out, life forms he called floaters, organic balloons, whale-sized or larger, pumping themselves full of hydrogen or hot gas to rise and sink as needed. If you've ever seen this Strindberg and helium animations on the, on the <laughs> internet, they're probably a little, little bit like helium. But yeah, I mean, there's, there's like no reason why it's got to be able to walk around or, you know, turn a key in a lock. Yeah. I mean, you can make an argument for almost any feature of humans as being really useful for being the kind of creature that we are. You know, we have dexterous hands and fingers so we can make complicated tools. And we have those because we evolved from tree swinging creatures who have to hold on to branches. But then you see videos of crows doing solving complicated puzzles with just their beaks. So there are so many different kinds of intelligence and it really is some of it is a question of just how much do we want to stretch our imaginations some of it is sort of how conservative you want to be like does an intelligent creature need hands to make tools seems like it on earth but who knows what else is out there so one of the movies that i really want to talk to you about and that i know plays a big role in your thinking and is more pleasing to many of the scientists to whom you spoke than perhaps Star Trek The Next Generation, at least on this basis, is Arrival. So mm-hmm. in Arrival, we meet a very different kind of extraterrestrial. One of the things about this is that these extraterrestrials are not humanoid. They're so not humanoid, the more you get to know them, the less humanoid they get. Say a little bit about that and, and what scientists had to say about it as well. Yeah. So when I was talking to scientists for the book, I liked to ask just about everyone as, as like a bonus question, what's your favorite alien in science fiction? Because I'm not interested in litigating like what's realistic, what's not, because we really have no idea. But I was curious what resonated for them. And the most common answer was the aliens in Arrival because they seem really alien. And this starts with their appearance. They have seven legs, which is not something we see on Earth. On Earth, almost all multicellular life is bilaterally symmetrical, which means if you fold it in half, the left and right sides match. Even a starfish, which has five limbs, you can fold across one line. And there are scientific reasons for that. It's not random. It has to do with the fact that we come from cells that divide in two, that just sort of sets you up to have two halves. But instead of being symmetrical down the middle, folding like that, the aliens in Arrival are what's called radially symmetrical, where they sort of like also like a starfish, it radiates their symmetry. You would slice them like a pie rather than folding them in half. Not that you should actually slice them like a pie. (laughs) So they have seven limbs. They don't have a front or a back. In the book or the story that the movie is based on, they have eyes going all the way around the sort of cylindrical barrel torso head thing they have. And so they don't have to turn to walk forwards or walk backwards, which is just such an alien way of experiencing the world. And then 
We find out that they also have a very alien way of experiencing time, of conceptualizing language. And in the story, this all goes together to just really make them feel extremely different in a way that nothing on Earth does. Right. And some of this is in the movie. Some of this is in the Ted Chiang story that the movie is derived from. I want to bring up two things here. One of them is just as a little interesting sideline. There's a moment where Amy Adams and Jeremy Renner's characters, they kind of go into where the alien life form is. And it's this kind of, you know, not particularly familiar kind of environment. And they're wearing this, you know, mylar suits or some kind of protective, you know, anti-alien gas suits or something. (laughs) And at a certain point, Amy Adams says, they need to see me. And she starts to take off the protective suit. And everybody back in master control is flipping out. Jeremy Renner's flipping out. They need to see me. But I think that's a really interesting moment, Jamie. It's a very, it's something we don't think about that much. We think about what is that? Who are you? As opposed to how do we present ourselves? I thought it was just a very interesting moment where, where Dr. Louise Banks said, they've got to see me. Yeah, and it, it really ties into so many of the themes of the movie where through learning the aliens' language, she builds such a connection with them and an understanding of how their very alien minds work. And so she can't be removed from them. She needs to be another presence for them, like another being. You know, it, you seem so almost mechanical when you're in one of those, you know, anti-alien gas suits, as you said. And it's it's funny, as much as those aliens are so alien, and I actually, I interviewed Ted Chang for the book, and I asked him, because I'm always curious about this, like, do you know what the aliens are thinking? Do they have an inner life for you? And he said, no, absolutely not, because he needed them to be opaque to him in order to write them as really alien. He doesn't know their motivations. He doesn't know what they want, because in the story, the purpose for their visit is much less clear than in the movie. But even while they are so alien and opaque, even to the author, Louise makes a very strong connection with them, and she needs to be as present with them as possible in order to do that. And she intuits that, and I think that's why she's able to do what she does throughout the rest of the movie. The other thing I wanted to bring up is about it is... And this is our segment's getting long and Lily Tyson's getting mad at me. But, you know, one of the things we inevitably think about, because we should, is just projecting our science onto ideas of extraterrestrial life. Because what else do we have, really? We have our science. But here you have a species that doesn't really, for example, experience causation which is a pretty fundamental scientific model here. Something happens that causes something else. But because of their experience of time, they don't really think in those terms. And to me anyway, and I think informed somewhat by your writing too, that's an invitation to a kind of humility, right? Well, maybe maybe the, yeah. way we, the very way that we look at stuff is kind of restrictive. I'm thinking of William James who wrote, we may be in the universe as dogs and cats are in our libraries, seeing the books (laughs) and hearing the conversation, but having no inkling of the meaning of it all. There's a little of that in this, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there is this common idea in science fiction or in how scientists think about potentially making contact that math would be the universal language. This is in Carl Sagan's Contact that we know that the signal from the aliens is intelligent because it's something fundamental in mathematics. Primes. Two, three, five, seven. Those are all prime numbers. And there's no way that's a natural phenomenon. Let's just calm down. And then they teach us how to understand the complexities of the message by starting with math. One plus one equals two. Now we understand how they're signaling numbers and addition and equaling, you know. But even that is an assumption that the way that we understand math and physics, these seemingly fundamental properties of the universe, could be very shaped by human cognition, human experience, language. And I think part of what's so thrilling about Arrival is that it gives us this glimpse of imagining something outside of that worldview. All right. We're talking to Jamie Green. The book is The Possibility of Life. We're going to take a quick break. We'll come back and there will be more of Jamie Green.
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. We're back. We're back with Jamie Green, science writer and author of The Possibility of Life, Science, Imagination, and Our Quest for Kinship in the Cosmos. We should say that you're pretty agnostic about the just whole question of whether there is life, whether there's what constitutes the beginning of life. Uh, I think about 12 years ago, we had Paul Davies on. I think he was the one who said this, that that there's this thought experiment that says that the possibility of a cyclone passing over a junkyard and assembling a a, a 747 uh, is more likely than the just creation of life ex nihilo. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know whether you want to weigh in on that question, but in a way, it's not necessarily the question of this book. It's not the question of this book, but it is a question that the book touches on because in order to write about how we imagine life on other worlds, I wanted to write a little bit about how we think about the origin of life because the way that life began on Earth tells us about how life might begin on other worlds, what is required for it, how we would expect it to evolve, which is to say also we don't know how life began on Earth. It is a fascinating question. My sense with far less scientific background than Paul Davies, but is um, at least looking historically, it seems like simple life, bacterial life, arose on Earth just about as soon in geological terms as conditions allowed. Like the, the crust cooled down, there was solid, there was water, and there was life. So that suggests that you don't need to roll the dice too many times before things link up correctly and you start getting these, you know, perpetuating cycles and information storage and life. But then what took a really long time, like 2 billion years, was the transition from simple life with no internal structures, no cell nucleus, to the kinds of cells that we are made of, which are cells with a nucleus, with organelles, with complex structures, which isn't to say that bacterial cells aren't complex. They do a lot of complex chemistry, but the structural complexity that lets you get to multicellularity took 2 billion years. That is a lot of cyclones going over a lot of junkyards. <laughs> so that is the root of a lot of my agnosticism. Right. You say we don't know, but I mean, technically speaking, Q does take Captain Picard back to the actual instant, right? I know. When I found that, I was like, oh, this is going in the book. Check. <laughs> Thank you, Star Trek. <laughs> I thought it would have been, you know, great if he just accidentally dropped his tricorder into the pool and he was going, no, 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 no. Don't do that. Um, so... We're going to talk a little bit here about what would happen on Earth if there were some confirmation of this. And of course, sometimes it seems like there's about to be some kind of confirmation of this. Like all discoveries, this one will and should continue to be reviewed, examined, and scrutinized. It must be confirmed by other scientists. I am determined that the American space program will put its full intellectual power and technological prowess behind the search for further evidence of life on Mars. Maybe the first thing to say is, Jamie, that there's a huge gap between existence of life somewhere and contact. So much would have to all kind of coincide and line up the right way to go from the first thing to the second thing. Maybe say what some of those factors are. Yeah, I mean, just going back to, you know, the origin of life, going from that to someone who uses radio signals and radio telescopes in a similar way that we do, it's just 
not at all a straight shot. And even that is a kind of convergence that we would need to be hoping for that not only like it doesn't matter what their biology is like, but are they convergent intellectually, technologically? You know, if the dominant life form on a planet is dolphins or is poets, they might not be building radio telescopes. We assume a lot about the social desires of aliens when we think they are also going to build radio telescopes and spaceships or when we start thinking that they are going to come and try to conquer us. You know, that is a huge assumption of projecting our recent history onto other worlds. But even if there is intelligent life out in the galaxy, I'll note that I'm saying galaxy and not universe, because if they're in another galaxy, it would be incredibly difficult to make any kind of contact. We might be able to detect their presence if their civilization is technological and is huge. And if they're like doing enough big stuff, it could be noticeable in like the starlight, basically, like what they're doing to their stars. But if we want to be exchanging communications, you know, it takes a year for a radio signal, radio being a kind of light waves, basically just not visible to cover a light year of space. The nearest star is four and change light years away. Most stars in the galaxy are hundreds of light years away. And if we go outside the galaxy, we're looking at thousands and hundreds of thousands. So, and also, you know, across that distance, the signals would sort of fade out. So when we, you know, when we look at, for example, images from the James Webb Space Telescope, and we see the thousands of galaxies, and they're, they're just so abundant. People tend to look at that and say, oh, well, surely there's someone out there. Even if it they are, we are not going to hear from them. We are not going to know. So it's almost like they may as well not exist. Anyone that we're going to have contact with would have to be relatively close. And then we would need to be in the right line to catch their signal. So if they're not intentionally sending it to us, if they haven't said, oh, I think, I think there's people out there, or they're like, you know, broadcasting to the whole galaxy, if they're not doing that, but we're just sort of catching the leakage of their signals, like their their TV show broadcasts are, are getting out to us. It's only like certain alignments and certain stars where we're going to be in the path of that signal. So there could be aliens out there looking for us and not finding us. We've mentioned contact a few times. Let's talk about the movie contact and the novel contact, because that's an this is an interesting one, right? There's a lot in your book, at the beginning of your book, about the tension between science and religion over the centuries. And every mm -hmm. time there's a Copernicus or anyone else saying, you know what, <laughs> we, might <be> the, <laughs> we might not be the last word on everything. We might not be the center of anything, the perfection of anything. It might be a lot more complicated than that. You could throw Darwin uh, into that conversation mm -hmm. uh, as well. But contact suggests that there would still be now, even a, in a much less religious time, some resistance to this idea. So what's more likely? Thank you. You're an all-powerful, mysterious God created the universe and then decided not to give any proof of his existence, or that he simply doesn't exist at all, and that we created him so we wouldn't have to feel so small and alone. I don't know. I couldn't imagine living in a world where God didn't exist. I wouldn't want to. So talk about that, Jamie Green. Even if people aren't religious, they, they might be humanists, kind of, kind of in the sense that, well, you know, I mean, here we are. We're human beings. That's really super important. The existence of other life might make us feel a little bit less important. The Sagan in contact suggests, you know, a real pushback against that. Obviously, that was quite a few decades ago. But what's your take now? Yeah, I do think that he was writing very much out of the political climate of his time where the religious right was a particular kind of force that I think has shifted a little bit. And so, you know, whether a person in government or in this case, the representative of humanity who might be going on a ship or something to make contact, like the question of whether Ellie Arroway, Jodie Foster's character, is an atheist is a real issue, which I hope wouldn't be such a thing anymore. But yeah, the question of humanism is really interesting. I actually just finished reading a book about humanism. It's called Humanly Possible, I think, by Sarah Bakewell. Yeah, we had, um, her, we had her on the show, actually. Perfect. It's a great book. So, and as I was listening, of course, I was thinking about, you know, would humanism 
extend to aliens? Are they fellow creatures? Do we expand the circle? Or, and I'm sure this would depend on how alien they are. But I, this is why I think a lot of these questions, a lot of these stories come down to empathy. How alien can a being be? And we still feel connected to it. We still feel empathy for it, which is a question we have to deal with a lot on Earth, both in how we deal with non-human animals and how we deal with humans who are very different from us. You know, how different can someone's worldview and experiences be and we still feel connected to them? Can we expand our circle of empathy? And I think a lot of writing about aliens is about challenging us to stretch that empathy as wide as possible, sort of like stretching your muscles really, really far, not because you're going to be getting into a split every day, but because when you have really stretch yourself as far as you can go, then in day-to-day -day life, you're a little looser, a little more expansive. And it's it's like doing that for our ability to extend our empathy and compassion and care. Yeah. And I love the way that you weave Thomas and Nichols, what it's like to be a bat, which is really what it's <laughs> like what it's like for a bat to be a bat in, in there. But we don't really have time to get into that. I'm already in trouble with Lily Tyson. So just two more quick things. So earlier in Astronauty Week, uh, we did talk to Adam Frank. He makes a, a cameo appearance in your book in, mm -hmm. in a really interesting way, too. It's about the notion of what I think he calls a human mythology and that <laughs> that the human mythology, at least in relation to how a more advanced race of, of alien life might behold us, is we suck. We are wrecking our planet. We're putting one manatee in a tank and just leaving it all alone for 67 years or something. I just saw that on Twitter the other day. Ugh. But um, we, like, we don't know how to treat other species. We don't know how to maintain our own world. We suck. And Frank suggests that there might be a different way of thinking about this, particularly if we start to encounter anybody else out there. But give me, give me a little bit of the Jamie Green take on this. Yeah, I mean, I think that he is building on ideas from Carl Sagan about thinking about humanity right now as being in a sort of adolescence, where we all of a sudden have this power to do horrible things to the planet, but we are not being responsible about it. And in Adam's view, if we um, even just imagine and believe that there exist other worlds that have gone through this challenge and have made it through, then we can, instead of saying, oh, we suck, we say, oh, we are in a choke point. We're at a, a real big hurdle that we have to get through. And, you know, it's funny. I actually think that, and, and so he says that because religion is not such a major part of society anymore, at least not in a unified way, we don't have these big stories that can inspire us anymore. But I actually think humanism provides an alternative to that, which is can be agnostic in general, like you don't, it doesn't have to be religious or atheistic, but looking at human stories and finding inspiration there, which is not to discount what Adam is saying. I just, the, the Sarah Bakewell is on my brain, hmm. you know, finding connection among other humans in human history, looking at our accomplishments that can give us hope for the ability to accomplish even more and, you know, turn things around. All right. So, Jamie Green, last question, uh, because it's the end of the week and at the end of the week, we typically do a slightly different kind of show that it ends with recommendations. <laughs> and Ooh. you read so many science fiction novels and short stories for this and watched a lot of movies, too. I, I don't know. People probably know most of the movies, but I'm wondering if there's a novel, a short story or even a super obscure movie or one or two of those that you'd like to recommend to our listeners. Oh, boy. I think I will recommend two novels, mm -hmm. both of which have some of my favorite weird imaginings of aliens. And in one case, they're very comprehensible to humans. And in one case, they are very much not. So in the comprehensible one is a book called Semiosis by Sue Burke, in which a group of humans travel across the stars to colonize a new planet, which they think the planet has not evolved large mammals. And so they think it has an evolved intelligence, but the planet is a billion years older than Earth. And so all of the life on it has had an extra billion years to just get a little bit smarter and a little bit smarter. And they find a very surprising sentience there. And it is, it is just a remarkable book. The other book is Embassy Town by China Mieville, mm. which I talk about in the section about language, because along with Arrival, this is one of the 
absolutely wildest examples of alien language where they're aliens that have two vocalizing organs, essentially two mouths. So when they speak language, they speak two words at once. But that's not even the weird part. The weird part is that they just have an entirely different sort of like an arrival worldview and like conceptual experience of the world. And it's one of those things that is just beyond like my ability to understand, but you feel like you can almost get there when you're reading the book. And it is just fascinating. When I finished it, I was like, surely there are 12 other books written in this universe. It is so rich and I want to keep <laughs> reading more. And there aren't any. And it was very frustrating. But other than that is just a remarkably beautiful, weird book that I could not put down when I was reading. Yeah, actually, your description of it in your book made me want to read it, too. So The Possibility it's of great. Life. The Possibility of Life is Jamie Green's book, Science, Imagination, and Our Quest for Kinship in the Cosmos. Jamie Green, you are a lot of fun to talk to. Thank you so <laughs> much for you. spending time with us today. Thank you so much. We're going to take a little break. We're going to come back with Doug Jones, who has probably played more non-human life forms than any actor under the sun or moon. So this is the end of Astronauty Week, the final thing we're doing in Astronauty Week. Astronauty Week was the creation of Lily Tyson, our senior producer, technical producer, uh, Kat Pastor. A lot of the mixing for today, maybe all of the mixing for today's show, will be done by Mr. McPants. Our interns, Joey Morgan and Letitia Peters, helped out as well. So I never listen to my own show. I just don't. It just makes me self-conscious. But sometimes, you know, you just start up the car and the radio's on and there's a rerun on. So this happened and it was an old show and I couldn't remember anything about it, but there was this lovely voice and this terrific personality and this very thoughtful person talking. And I thought, who the hell is that? And it turned out to be Doug Jones. It was a show about mime. And then I said, well, I want to have Doug Jones on again. <laughs> and then we have the perfect excuse right now, a show about how non-human beings are envisioned, sometimes by the entertainment industry. Doug Jones is an actor known for his roles in Hellboy, The Shape of Water, Pan's Labyrinth, and more. And he joins us for his second appearance on our show right now. Doug Jones, welcome back. Well, hi. We did a radio show about mime. Yes. Am I <laughs> this is This is a... Our show is the kind of radio show that would do an episode about mime. Um, <laughs> well, it's good to be back. Thank yes. you so much for having me. And this time we're letting you talk. On the mime show, you just had to sort of wave your hands in front of the microphone. Right. Um, yeah, and nobody understood. I know. <laughs> exactly. So this time, yes, you portrayed all kinds of creatures and, and lots of different aliens. And we'll be talking about Star Trek and we we'll, might be talking about, oh, I don't know, you being Cochise of the Volm and Falling Skies or the Silver Surfer. But let me just back up and say from 5,000 feet, is do you have a version of method acting that you take into this job when you are portraying a kind of being that doesn't really exist but you have to mm. breathe that alien into existence or whatever it is into existence. Is there a kind of a Doug Jones method acting? Mm, not Nothing that I've ever tracked. Like, you know, this is the Doug Jones method. No, uh, <laughs> no it's more like every character that I'm presented with has his own ecosystem, his own life, his own origins. And when you don't have something in earthly nature to go off of, then yes, I have to kind of let the writers and the director and myself kind of collaborate to create this from the ground up. Right. So are you also asking a lot of questions that are subtext or outside the script? Are you saying, has Saru ever seen a Twinkie before? I mean, are are you wanting to know things that might not be right there on paper? Well, if Saru had ever seen a Twinkie, he wouldn't look as tall and skinny as he does now. <laughs> Bad example. Right. But I am... Um, yeah, no, uh, yes, that answer is yes. That like, Especially with, with Saru, I've, he's the character that I've played the most in my entire 37-year career. I've gotten to know him better than any other character of any sort. So as an, and out of all my aliens, of course, he's got the most, now the most layered backstory, the most, you know, uh, personal idiosyncrasies and, and fears and courages. And he's been through a lot. So when the show started, he was born into... A, a fearful environment where he was a part of a, of a prey species. So always on the lookout, had threat ganglia that popped out of his neck whenever there was a danger nearby with an innate sense of, of danger. 
and then so somewhere through the show in season two, I all that dropped out of my neck, and I became courageous, and the, the innate fear was gone now, and it was kind of an adolescence that I passed through. Fear has always been the governing principle of my life, but now it is gone. More than that, I feel power, my own power. So this was all kind of unfolding as every episode was written. Like all of a sudden I'm getting a script going, oh, well, there's a change. So, and with Saru, with his hoof feet, the comparison they made with me uh, starting the show was you're kind of like an antelope. And if there was a, like a, a leopard or a jaguar chasing you down, how would you outfox them? And they do. Like a lot of herd animals do have ways to outfox the, the predator species. So he's he's absolutely a survivor. So I had that kind of base to work from. So there is a Doug Jones method. You really are having to make choices about physicality that don't mm-hmm. exist anywhere as uh, as an uh, as a prior. Um, right. and, and you know, man, maybe the fact that you have a lot of mime training is something that you've tried to cover up from the public. But it's it's out <laughs> in the open right now. So I I, mean, I have to assume that's important. I, I if somebody's a, like an antelope in Probably in post, things are going to spring out of their neck. I mean, you you are going to have to think about your body maybe in a different way from the way you did a week before you took this job. Oh, absolutely. Right, right. And the thing about, about again, back to Saru and Star Trek Discovery is that he has hoof feet, which which denotes a land animal. But he's also from a planet called uh, Kaminar where uh, – and we are called Kelpians. Yes, and, you know, when you see flashbacks or or home planet visits within the show, you know, my previous life, I, I farmed kelp out of the water at the beach we lived at with, in our hut. So he also is very adept in the water. And that's when my posture changed when I put on those boots for the first time. And my walk uh, was I wanted to make this walk of his different than anyone I've ever played before. And after 37 years, that's a tough task. Mm-hmm. So but my posture had to change to keep my balance in those hoof boots and my arms then kind of gently swayed behind me. And I, it was too easy to do a, instead of a front to back swing of the arms, I did a side to side swing of the arms with, with a fluid kind of flowy, fin-like motion to the hands. So that made sense that he now looks like a land animal who's also very adept in the water. Right. Saru, we should say, is the first Kelpian to appear in the series, the Star Trek Oops, franchise yes. on Star Trek Discovery. But to, to that point, Doug... You know, at, at this juncture in history, nobody walks in and goes, Star Trek? Not familiar with it, but I'll give it a shot. You know, you would have probably grown up a little bit on early Star Trek. And so could you say a little bit about that, about seeing other yeah. people play non-terrestrial, non-human mm-hmm. life forms and how that might have shaped you or intimidated you or whatever it did to you? Yeah. No, Gary, I, I was born in 1960. So yes, uh, Star Trek started in 1966 on network television. I was there for all of that. And so yeah, and Spock was my first, like, other than human sort of character that I really connected with. On the bridge of the, of the Starship Enterprise, he was the one that looked a little different than everybody else and spoke a little different than everybody else. And when I felt like, oh, every oddity that I feel when I go to school, I see sort of in him and I really connected with him. So playing aliens kind of came naturally to me in my adult life. It's like, no, I remember this. I know this. The other part of your life, I think that we don't like to think about is your three and a half hours every day getting into your special (laughs) effects makeup and your one and a half hours getting out of your special effects makeup. I mean, I, I would imagine that's a pretty consistent thing across all of these creaturely roles that you've played mm-hmm. is just there's you spend a lot of time, you know, sitting in a chair being encircled or maybe standing up too and being encircled by costume and makeup people. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, sometimes there's three makeup artists that are working on me and I don't and I can't sit down because they need to work on my backside too, <laughs> depending on how much skin is exposed and how much uh, alien needs to show or or creature needs to show. So, but it's a part of the deal. When you say yes to a gig like that, I'm playing someone from, you know, or, or in Falling Skies, I played a Volm alien, you, as you very perfectly described. Co- Cochise uh, of the Volm. Cochise. I was, yes. The, it's a nasty nickname. The yeah, nasty nickname that's been given to you by, I think, uh, an earthling character. That's right. Because my real name was, was Chichok Ilsichnitschatikol. 
And they shortened it to Cochise, thank heaven. Nobody just, had to say Just it. monogramming the towels was going to be too hard. That's, that's a toughie, exactly. It's a lot of embroidering. But he also was, you know, from another planet and was here to help. What are you fighting them for? Resources, territory? A flower. The Catarius. It blooms on my homeland when the weather begins to war. A flower that is so valuable that it's caused an intergalactic war? The Catarius has no value to anyone except me. Something you remember from your childhood? Actually, I have never seen it. Just as I have never held the warm soil of my homeland in my hands. Every alien I've played, it seems to be that, that I have some special power that humans could, can't match and some kind of intellect that humans can't match. So that's been kind of a fun part for me. I think Cochise from Falling Skies and Saru from, from Star Trek Discovery have a commonality in the way they speak. They're both written very intelligently, and that's something that the writers inform me with. And so they have answers that the humans just didn't think of at the time. But you, you also, we should point out, you have played the Silver Surfer, who I think counts as an alien. Yes. And, and you were also an alien on X-Files. I, I, I'm th most of the alien roles on X-Files are not like long-running roles. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> on X Files, I I was one of the gray aliens. Gray aliens showed up here and there, so I got to play a gray alien on on one episode. Of, I think it was a flat. It was a a historical piece about the African American baseball league, and one of the players was actually a gray alien in disguise. So you know, listening to you talk, Doug Jones, I'm thinking what you are kind of is the opposite of the character Alan Rickman plays in Galaxy Quest. In Galaxy <laughs> Quest, Alan Rickman plays this Shakespearean actor who's got this role where he plays an alien. He just, tell, he just hates the whole thing. is just dripping with right. scorn. But, you know, and but the only thing he's doing is, ha is wearing the head prosthesis and then he's kind of being himself. Otherwise, you do this head to toe, right? I mean, you are... You, you, there's, there's no way to do this. I mean, we, we talk, they, people talk a lot about commitment in comedy mm -hmm. sketches and acting. I mean, I, I assume the commitment here when you're playing another life form is huge. Yeah, right. Again, I said yes to the gig, therefore I have to see it through. So complaining about it in front of other people is really useless. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, if we ever did have sort of a Jodie Foster, Matthew McConaughey moment where there's some kind of contact or something – I don't know. Would would you feel as though you would have kind of a professional interest in terms of what's showing up? I mean, do you ever th even think about that? What will happen if we someday meet a creature who is not from here? Right. Well, you know, it's right. It's something you do think about because, again, most of the aliens I've played have come with superpowers and super intellect. What if we got visited by an alien that was just an idiot and <laughs> made it here by accident? You know what I mean? That possibility has never been explored on film, really, I don't think. So, yes, I would love to, th I would love to think that I, you know, uh, set, step aside, boys. Doug Jones here. I know how to communicate with him. I, I, I doubt that that's ever going to happen. You know, and I don't know. I don't know what to think about Area 51 and, and you know, what they might be hiding there and what they've found. And what what was that recent one that made me laugh even? It was like an uh, an uncovered, unburied alien life form that was in, in you know, that was... Uh, there were space mummies in Mexico. That space mummies, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> they looked, well, they looked like little clay sculptures. And, and I, I kind of chuckled looking at them like, no, please, I don't, I don't, that doesn't even make sense. Right. So I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> no, but you do know, uh, or you know as well as anybody else does. And so, it's, first of all, as usual, a delight to talk to you, Doug Jones, uh, <laughs> actor uh, known for his roles in Hellboy, The Shape of Water, Pan's Labyrinth, and more. And when I say more, the minute we end this conversation, the phone's going to ring. Doug's agent's going to say, they want you to read for a space mummy in a new movie here. So, <laughs> right. Uh, Dug up in Mexico. <laughs> Dug up in Mexico. So, so get ready for that, Doug Jones. And thank you so much for visiting visiting with us today. No, thanks so much for having me. Big love. And I want to thank everybody who listened to all five episodes of Astronauty Week. Of course, you know, you're going to go out with Doug Jones. I mean, that's that's the perfect place to end. But I hope you've had a lot of fun and learned a lot of things over the course of these last five episodes. 